Alright, welcome back. We're back to talking about the Iliad. This is our second lecture, and in this one we'll primarily be talking about Book 6. Um, I want to do this one a little bit differently because Book 6 is very unusual. Um, it's probably my favorite book in the entire Iliad, and I'm not alone in that. Like a lot of scholars, a lot of people who have read this many, many times, we frequently come back to Book 6. Uh, it is unique among ancient literature insofar as rather than dealing with these epic deeds and great battles and really important events of moment, it really gives us a moment to sort of stop, slow down, and appreciate the characters that Homer is bringing to the page here, especially Hector. Um, but even his other interactions with his mother and with his wife and with all the other characters hanging around in Troy at this point in time, it really shows us a lot about why the Greeks behave the way that they behave, what they think about war, what they think about religion, and what they think about family. Um, more than anything, I think this gives us a glimpse of what, what Homer is trying to tell us about this whole Trojan War business. Um, what exactly all these people are in fact fighting for, or at least what they should be fighting for. Because, surprise, as much as Achilles is like the central character of the Iliad, as much as he is the, quote, protagonist, it's really Hector who this text is focused on. Um, as much as, you know, we're going to struggle with Achilles and feel his loss and watch as his rage, like, changes and mutates, um, see the far-flung effects of everything that he does, at the end of the day, if you want a positive role model from this text, one that is unequivocally good, you look to Hector. Um, and we'll talk about that more as we see sort of Hector's career come to its conclusion. Um, but here I definitely want to stress, first of all, that Homer is really generous with the Trojans here. Um, more so than you would expect from from a text written by the Greeks, in theory, um, or at least a text directed toward the Greeks. Like, we talked a little bit about how Homer probably was pulling as much from a Trojan tradition as he was from a Greek tradition in the writing of the Iliad, um, so it's possible that some of that is just a remnant of the old traditions, um, and maybe this chapter is as well. But the fact of the matter is, it's such a focused point. Like, it's such an important chapter, um, and enough time and care is devoted to it that seems so far from what the epic tradition usually is, that it'd be kind of shocking to make that case. Um, if this is a remnant of the old version of the Iliad, then it's a really sophisticated and really interesting glimpse at that old tradition. Um, it seems more likely that this is, if anything, a new edition. Uh, that it doesn't belong to the old, like, bloodthirsty epics um, that Homer was likely pulling from. Um, this is a character moment, a time to pause, a time to sort of do something that most of the poem doesn't have the time to do. It's time to look at motivation. It's time to look at the personal psychology of these characters. Um, but before we can get to Hector... Um, we have to talk a little bit about what happens with Diomedes and Glaucus and their meeting on the battlefield. Um, so, again, like, this is book six, it's right after book five, we just watched Ares get wrecked. 
by Diomedes and go whining up to Zeus and everybody just ignores him because Ares is the friggin' worst. Um, and now we've got the action returns to Diomedes, the Greeks are counterattacking to the Trojan advance, now that Ares is off the field, um, Hector himself, like, retreats. Not exactly, like, personally ordering retreat, but he realizes that things are, go are going a little bit badly, um, so he wants to go back home and um, consult the Trojans and get a prayer set up to Athena. So you'll see here at the beginning around uh, line 110, um, it looked to them as if some god had come from the starry sky to help the Trojans. The Greeks are retreating because Hector has jumped down, and it looks like Hector is himself a god. Um, it had been a sudden rally. Hector shouted and called to the Trojans, Soldiers of Troy and illustrious allies, remember to fight like the men that you are, while I go to the city and ask the elders who sit in council and our wives to pray to the gods and promise bulls by the hundred. So Hector leaves. Um, he's not abandoning his troops. Uh, he, like, gives them a final set of orders before he goes. Um, but importantly, he wants to make sure that, like, the people back in Troy are sacrificing for their sake. He wants to sacrifice to Athena, so hopefully she'll give him some slack and the Trojans can fight a decent counterattack. Um, but as soon as Hector leaves, we switch gears again, and we're now following Diomedes on the field. Um, specifically the meeting of Glaucus and Diomedes. Then Glaucus, son of Hippolochus, met Diomedes in no man's land. Both were eager to fight, but first Tydeus' son made his voice heard above the battle noise. And which mortal hero are you? I've never seen you out here before on the fields of glory, and now here you are ahead of everyone, ready to face my spear. Pretty bold. I feel sorry for your parents. Of course, you may be an immortal down from heaven, far be it from me to fight an immortal god, even though he literally just took out Achilles. Not even mighty Lycurgus lived long after he tangled with the immortals, driving the nurses of Dionysus over the mountain of Nysa and making them drop their wands as he beat them with an ox goad. Dionysus was terrified and plunged into the sea where Thetis received him into her bosom, trembling with fear at the humans' threats. Then the gods, who live easy, grew angry with Lycurgus, and the son of Cronus made him go blind, and he did not live long, hated as he was by the immortal gods. No, I wouldn't want to fight an immortal. But if you are human and shed blood, step right up for a quick end to your life. Now, first off, we should remark that it's kind of weird for Diomedes to just be shouting at people in the middle of the battle, but this is actually fairly common in the Iliad. Frequently, when various heroes will meet on the fields of Ilium, um, they're gonna, like, talk to each other first, and, like, even to the point of having these long, involved monologues or, like, detailed descriptions telling stories like Diomedes does about Lycurgus here, um, so, you know, it's not all action, or at least not in the sense that we're used to. Like, a lot of these monologues will include some heavy-duty insults and, you know, some bragging about one's own prowess, um, but oftentimes they just stop and talk and then they kill each other, um, for whatever reason. Um, again, this is something we're only going to really see with the heroes so much, like especially when there is some character work that needs to be done. But notice too the story that Diomedes tells here, um, and why he tells it. He tells it specifically for the purpose of saying, I don't want to mess with the gods. Even though he literally just got done wounding Aphrodite, trying to attack Apollo and failing, and then wounding Ares with the help of Athena. 
it's kind of weird for him to suddenly have second thoughts about attacking immortals. Like, you, this probably would have been important before Athena showed up and said, all right, and now it's time to attack some gods. Um, so, if anything, it seems like Diomedes is recognizing the fact that he's kind of in trouble right now. Like, he literally just ticked off two of the most powerful gods in the entire pantheon, and the only reason that he didn't tick off a third is because Apollo is not even messed with him at all. Um, chances are it's just a matter of time before Ares and Aphrodite get Diomedes back in some capacity, and he knows this. Um, this is why he tells this story. Like, even notice that it's Dionysus who Lycurgus offends. Um, and not one of the war gods, not, you know, a god who does fighting the way that Ares does. Instead, we have Lycurgus being punished by going blind. Um, and just being disempowered in a supernatural way. A way that is not related to attacking and defending. But notice, too, Glaucus's response. Great son of Tydeus, why ask about my lineage? Human generations are like leaves in their seasons. The wind blows them to the ground, but the tree sprouts new ones when spring comes again. Men, too. Their generations come and go. But if you really do want to hear my story, you're welcome to listen. Many men know it. And he proceeds to tell us a long, involved story about his lineage. Specifically about Bellerophon, who is one of his ancestors. Um... And as soon as he starts talking about Bellerophon, like, and this is a really involved story, it's like a good page and a half of, you know, the exploits of Bellerophon. Here is Bellerophon killing the Chimera, here is Bellerophon once again attacking Amazons, because who doesn't attack the Amazons at some point? Um, and then other doing other important deeds and so on and so forth. And then finally, after he ends this story, after he announces his lineage and connects it to Bellerophon, Diomedes stops fighting. He said, it says, Diomedes grinned when he heard all this. He planted his spear in the bounteous earth and spoke gently to the Lycian prince. We have old ties of hospitality. My grandfather Oneus long ago entertained Bellerophon in his halls for 20 days, and they gave each other gifts of friendship. Oneus gave a bright belt with scarlet and Bellerophon a golden cup, which I left at home. I don't remember my father Tydeus, since I was very small when he left for Thebes in the war that killed so many Achaeans. But that makes me your friend, and you my guest. If ever you come to Argos, and you are my friend, and I your guest whenever I travel to Lycia. So we can't cross spears with each other, even in the thick of battle. There are enough Trojans and allies for me to kill, whomever a god gives me, and I can run down myself, and enough Greeks for you to kill as you can. And let's exchange armor, so everyone will know that we are friends from our father's days. We stop the fight. Like, they're getting ready to square off. Diomedes gives this long speech about how he is ready to totally wreck this person unless it turns out to be a god because, you know, gods will screw him over in the long run. And then, to explain his lineage, Glaucus gives this long story about Bellerophon, at which point Diomedes is like, oh, you're one of Bellerophon's kids? Well, you know, Bellerophon and my dad were friends, so we're friends. Period. The end. Let's stop fighting, let's exchange armor, let's demonstrate to everyone that we are allies, friends. Um, we are not going to attack each other. And they do. In fact, the text makes a rather important note that, like, Zeus took away Glaucus's good sense for he exchanged his golden armor for bronze. Um, really, Glaucus gets the poor end of the deal here. He's got this really awesome golden armor that's worth, like, a hundred oxen, and he gets from Diomedes this crappy bronze armor that is only worth nine. Um, so, but notice the way that 
this works. And notice the reasons why. Because their fathers were friends, because they have ancestors who made an alliance through their hospitality, they are, by extension, friends. They are, by extension, sworn not to attack each other. Um, and we're going to see this a lot in the Odyssey. Hospitality is one of the major themes of the Odyssey, so keep this in mind as we go forward. Um, but hospitality is a major, a major moral imperative in the ancient Greek culture. Um, remember, ancient Greece is a giant pile of islands, like this huge archipelago, um, and one and you'll notice you'll remember like we talked about how it's all these different city states that are completely separated from one another um when you travel in ancient greece for whatever crazy reason you know maybe you're on some quest from the gods maybe you're going to see the oracle at delphi who knows um it is a dangerous business because the only people you know the only people who are interested in protecting you are the people in your city state your family your friends your demos in some cases um, the people who you have these long-standing blood ties with. These city-states do not mix all that much. So hospitality becomes the super important priority. If you are on the road, the only way that you do not, like, get murdered or robbed or just, like, crushed by random rampaging bands of Greek pillagers is if everyone acknowledges that travelers are sacred. Um, that you do not mess with people who are in the midst of traveling. Um, and this goes both ways. The reason why you don't mess with people who are traveling is because one day you're going to have to travel and you don't want to be messed with when that happens. So Bellerophon, in his many adventures, apparently stopped over at Tydeus's, um manor or his palace. And in the process, they gave him hospitality rights, they gave him food, they let him sleep there, they protected him while he was hanging out in that area. And then Bellerophon went on his merry way and promised to do the same if Tydeus or any of his offspring uh, came up to Bellerophon. And now this pays off, like a generation later, after the fathers are dead and gone, the sons carry on this tradition. Oh, we guaranteed hospitality rights to each other, and as a result, we will not mess with each other. Um, we have something sacred, a powerful bond. And this is how you get protected in these dangerous times. Um, the gods look favorably upon those who are hospitable to one another, and we'll see this again in the Odyssey over and over and over again. It's a huge priority. Um, but keep this in mind, like, the gods look favorably on being nice to travelers and guests, and so everybody stops in the middle of a war when it's appropriate because of these hospitality bonds. Um, this is strong enough to stop this mortal rage, in a manner of speaking. But enough about Glaucus and Diomedes, I definitely want to talk about Hector and his adventures in the city. And... If it isn't obvious, we're going to break this chapter down a lot. Like, we skipped over a lot when I was talking about books one and five in my last lecture. Um, I want to systematically break through Hector's adventures in Troy. Um, like, lots of quoting, lots of close examination. Uh, read this chapter carefully if you haven't already, and we are going to just walk right through it. Um, so, no transition, now we're talking about Hector in the, in the text. Hector is walking through Troy, he 
is already extremely well regarded. Like even in these first couple of lines around 246, when Hector reached the oak tree by the western gate, Trojan wives and daughters ran up to him, asking about their children, their brothers, their kinsmen, their husbands. He took them all, each woman in turn, to pray to the gods. Sorrow clung to their heads like mist. Then he came to Priam's palace, a beautiful building made of polished stone with a central courtyard flanked by porticos, upon which opened fifty adjoining rooms where Priam's sons slept with their wives. Remember, Priam famously has fifty sons and fifty daughters. He is extremely well off, has a gigantic family, and the palace reflects this. But notice, too, that Hector is known by everyone and takes the time to interact with everyone. All these wives and daughters run up to him asking about their husbands, their fathers, who are in the war. Um, and Hector, A, knows all these people, all these soldiers, and can respond to each of these women in turn. He ultimately tells them all to go pray for them. Go pray to the gods, which itself is indicative about Hector's character. Um, but he's also really popular. Um, and not popular in some kind of frivolous, like, I want to you know, be popular so people like me kind of sense. No, he's popular because, A, he knows everyone, which means he, again, like, knows you in some sense, but also because he does, in fact, take the time. He's kind to them. He allows this conversation to happen, and he is, in some ways, humble about this. Like, he protects his soldiers. He has a vested interest in their health, safety, and also their, like, familial life. Um, he cares about them as more than just troops under his command, which you'll notice is a far cry from what we've seen with either Agamemnon or Achilles. Like, can you imagine Agamemnon, Mr. You can't take my prize, or if you do take my prize, I'm going to take your prize, because I want my prize, and it's not fair that you all get prizes and I don't get a prize. Like, no, this is, this is Hector who is literally stopping and making the time to listen to everybody's grievances, everybody's concerns. Everyone is afraid for their husband, for their father, for whoever their loved ones are out in the field. And Hector takes the time to console them. And they are, feel comfortable coming up to him and asking about this. Like, Hector is the defender of Troy. He is the most powerful soldier on the Trojan side. He is Priam's own son and the most beloved of Priam's sons. And he still makes this time. He still stops and answers everyone who comes and asks him questions. Um, and notice, too, he's pious about this. His responses go pray to the gods. And even on his mission right now, he is going to ask for the women of the city to pray to the gods. Like, the first thing he does when he gets into Troy is see his mother, Hecuba, and ask her to pray for them. So, when we see Hecuba, she asks, Hector, my son, why have you left the war and come here? Are those abominable Greeks wearing you down in the fighting outside, and does your heart lead you to our Acropolis to stretch your hands upward to Zeus? But stay here while I get you some honey-sweet wine, so you can pour a libation to Father Zeus first and the other immortals, then enjoy some yourself, if you will drink wine. If you will drink. Wine greatly bolsters a weary man's spirits, and you are weary from defending your kinsmen. But Hector shoots this down. Mother, don't offer me any wine. It would drain the power out of my limbs. I have too much reverence to pour a libation with unwashed hands to Zeus Almighty or to pray to Cronion in the black cloud banks spattered with blood in the filth of battle. Hector doesn't want to pray because, first off, he needs to go back to the war and he can't get drunk, but also because he thinks it would be offensive to the gods to show up 
all blood spattered and messy. I said last time that, again, we don't see the heroes spattered with blood very much. Like, Ares is pretty unique insofar as he seems to be, like, glutting himself by smearing himself with blood. Hector admits he is covered in blood at this point. Um, he is a giant mess. But he admits this. This is not, like, Homer describing him as such. This is Hector admitting it himself and recognizing it, recognizing it, his own unworthiness before the gods. He is being super pious here, and super responsible. He also doesn't want to go get drunk because it would affect his ability to command his troops. Um, he is being a good commander, a good son, a good citizen of Troy, and a good, pious respecter of the gods. Um, everything about this interaction indicates Hector's responsibility, Hector's self-awareness, Hector's ability to put aside his own personal desires for the sake of his soldiers, his city, his family, the people that he cares about and loves. So he tells her, you must go to the war goddess's temple, since he can't, again, covered in blood, to make sacrifice with a band of old women. Choose the largest and loveliest robe in the house, the one that is dearest to all of you, and place it on the knees of braided Athena, and promise twelve heifers to her in her temple, unblemished yearlings, if she will pity the town of Troy, its wives, and its children, and if she will keep from holy Ilion wild Diomedes, who's raging with his spear. Go then to the temple of Athena the war goddess, and I will go over to summon Paris, if he will listen to what I have to say. I wish the earth would gape open beneath him. Olympian Zeus has bred him as a curse to Troy, to Priam, and all Priam's children. If I could see him dead and gone to Hades, I think my heart might be eased of its sorrow. Now, there are a couple of things here. First off, notice how pious he is about this sacrifice. You must go to the war goddess's temple, make a sacrifice with a band of old women, choose the largest, loveliest robe in the house, the one that is dearest to you. Not just the crappy robe that you, everyone uses for sacrifices. No, the one that you care about the most. Make it a real sacrifice. Something significant. Something that Athena will recognize. And notice, too, the fact that he is specifically trying to petition Athena here. Um, he knows that Athena is the one who's empowering Diomedes. We literally just saw Diomedes wrecking Trojans with the help of Athena. Wrecking Ares with the help of Athena. Hector apparently picks up on this. I don't know how, because most of the time people don't get to see the gods. They just, like, extrapolate, oh, there must be a god. This guy is really scary right now. Um, Hector seems to have figured this out. He's intelligent enough to have figured out what's going on. So he's asking Athena to back off, basically. Um, there is a very pragmatic active, or act. There is a very pragmatic reasoning behind what Hector is doing here. He recognizes Athena is destroying the Trojans. We need to petition Athena to stop. Um, and we're going to do it right. We're going to respect her. We're going to give her a gift that is worthy of her. Um, but notice, too, how he changes gears as soon as he talks about Paris. Um, I will go over to summon Paris if he will listen to what I have to say. I wish the earth would gape open beneath him. Olympian Zeus has bred him as a curse to Troy, to Priam, and all Priam's children. Like, we have just been stressing how nice and generous and sympathetic and great Hector is. And then he just does this 180 as soon as he starts talking about Paris. Because, again, Paris is the friggin' worst. And we'll talk about that in a moment when they actually talk to each other. But for now, I want to sort of concentrate on how Hecuba 
interacts with Athena, how the actual prayer goes down. So Hecuba goes to the Great Hall, calls to her handmaidens, this is line 300, and they gathered together the city's old women. She went herself to a fragrant storeroom which held her robes, the exquisite work of Sidonian women who godlike Paris brought from Phoenicia when he sailed the sea on the voyage he made for highborn Helen. Hecuba chose the robe that lay at the bottom, the most beautiful of all, woven of starlight, and bore it away as a gift for Athena. A stream of old women followed behind. Now notice that the robe itself is crafted by the women that apparently Paris picked up on the way back from carrying off Helen. So once again, we have a connection to Paris's original whole messy business with Helen. Um, this is kind of a robe unfairly won, in a sense. Um, but notice how much detail Homer goes into in this description about how the robe is woven of starlight, um, how they come to the temple of Pallas Athena, how the doors are opened, how each of the characters involved in this process. Um, they all lift their hands, they all pray to Athena, they take the robe and they put it on the knees of the goddess's statue. They pray, Lady Athena who defends our city, brightest of goddesses, hear our prayer. Break now the spear of Diomedes and grant that he fall before the western gate, that we may now offer twelve heifers in this temple, unblemished yearlings. Only do thou pity the town of Troy, its wives, and its children. But Pallas Athena denied her prayer. Now, there's something really palpably tragic about this, that Hector specifically goes into Troy to have the women of Troy pray to Athena so Diomedes' hot streak will end. And Homer goes to a great deal of, of trouble describing Hector's interaction with Hecuba, Hecuba getting the robe, and Hector, Hecuba bringing the robe and all the women to the temple and them going through the doors and them doing all the processes and making this really impassioned plea and then dropping this line, but Pallas Athena denied her prayer. One of the things we haven't really talked about in this class, although, you know, it has sort of hovered around the periphery, is that the gods are fickle. Um, the Greeks do not see a real reliability to the gods. Like, we're going to see in, here in the Iliad and in the Odyssey as well, a lot of bad behavior on the gods in the respect of, like, Zeus sleeping with other women and, you know, Ares being a little whiny brat, a, sh brat, a shifty lout. Um, we're going to see other characters, like other gods, taking on these petty grievances like Poseidon hating Odysseus. Sure, that's all bad behavior, but at the same time, like... We have seen people petition the gods and goddesses when something goes wrong. Um, you know, like, the Trojans recognize that they have done something wrong in carrying off Helen, but at the same time, they're protected by Aphrodite and Ares and Apollo and company. Um, there are lots of people who the Trojans can appeal to. But here we have a straight-up denial of a prayer. Like, no equivocation here, no, maybe God wants something else. This is a far cry from the, from the Israelite tradition, where, like, all prayers are heard by God. And while, you know, they're all answered, they're not all answered positively. Um, here, we literally have a God saying, straight up, no. Um, Athena is pissed. She does not want to listen to what the Trojans have to say. They are petitioning her, and she is rejecting them, straight out. She is not sympathetic. She is not caring about their situation. 
Um, she has her own business. And so, you know, doing all of this preparation, doing all of this praying, taking the time, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. There's something really fatalistic about this um, that Athena can literally just shoot you down. Um, your prayers can literally go unheard or unregarded, maybe even piss them off more. Um, the gods are fickle, they are mean, and they are petty, and they are small-minded, and they sometimes are acting in ways that we cannot comprehend and certainly cannot control. Um, Homer is very aware of this. Homer like puts this front and center, and we're going to see it again in the Odyssey as well. There will be a point where uh, Odysseus will be petitioning the gods, and they're just not going to hear him. Um, they're just going to deny the prayer outright for whatever reason. And it's even a pettier reason than this. Like Odysseus is going to pray to Zeus and Zeus, who for all intents and purposes should grant his prayer. Odysseus has great reasoning for why he should listen. And he just doesn't. Just not interested for whatever crazy reason. Um, this is how the Greeks see their gods. They are in some sense unfeeling, uninterested in the plight of mortals. Um, they're so wrapped up in their own drama and their own business and their own preferences and feuds that you can come with all the best of intentions, sacrifice a bunch of oxes or your most beloved robe and doesn't matter. Does not matter. Um, now in the meantime, while this is going on, Hector comes to Paris. And again, this is a really telling interaction. So while they prayed to great Zeus's daughter, Hector came to Paris's beautiful house, which he had built himself with the aid of the best craftsmen in all wide Troy. Sleeping quarters, a hall, and a central courtyard near to Priam's and Hector's on the city's high rock. Hector entered, Zeus's light upon him, a spear sixteen feet long, cradled in his hand, the bronze point gleaming in the feral gold. He found Paris in the bedroom, busy with his weapons, fondling his curved bow, his fine shield and breastplate. Helen of Argos sat with her household women, directing their exquisite handicraft. Hector meant to shame Paris and provoke him. This is a fine time to be nursing your anger, you idiot. We're dying out there defending the walls. It's because of you the city is in this hellish war. If you saw someone else holding back from combat, you'd pick a fight with him yourself. Now get up before the whole city goes up in flames. Note, Hector has zero respect for Paris. And at this point in the text, it's even been warranted. I mentioned last time that one of the chapters that we skipped, Paris has his fight with, it's either Menelaus or Ajax, I don't remember which, unfortunately. And in the middle of the fight, he just gets zipped off by Aphrodite. And not just zipped off, but like zipped off to his bedchambers where Helen is waiting to have sex with him. Um, Paris escapes the combat entirely, to go and play bedroom games with the woman that he abducted to cause this whole giant mess in the first place. There is something very profoundly frivolous about everything that Paris does here. And Hector hates him. Like, legit hates him for this. A fine time to be nursing your anger, you idiot. We're dying out there defending the walls because of you. This is your war, and we're all bound up in it we are all screwed over by you and your impetuous lustful actions if you had a grain of sense this would not have happened and paris rather than fighting back just straight out agrees with him 
That's no more than just, Hector. But listen now to what I have to say. It's not out of anger or spite toward the Trojans. I've been here in my room. I only wanted to recover from my pain. My wife was just now encouraging me to get up and fight, and that seems the better thing to do. Victory takes turns with men. Wait for me while I put on my armor. Or go on ahead. I'm pretty sure I'll catch up with you. To which Hector said nothing. So, Paris admits, yeah, I'm a dick. Um, I totally admit that, yes, the entire war is because of me. And the only reason that I'm in here, it's not because I don't want to fight. It's not because I'm upset with the Trojans. It's just, like, I've been in a lot of pain lately. Like, my arm's been hurting after that whole duel with Menelaus. And, you know, I just needed a little time to recover. Like, you know how it goes. You have good days and bad days. I'm just having a bad day, but I think it's okay. I I can come out and fight with you now. And Hector is just not not buying it at all like zero interest in what paris has to say and for good reason because again paris is a little shit he is the absolute cause of all of this horrible struggling and violence he is the one jeopardizing the city of troy he is 100 percent the cause of what's going on here and he is sitting up in his bedroom polishing his weapons and clearly had no intent of actually coming out onto the field before Hector showed up. He is literally just trying to save face in this case. And notice Helen knows this too. Now this is like the only interaction between Hector and Paris properly but the interaction between Hector and Helen is actually considerably more robust. Helen is fascinating in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, she shows up in both, and her character is just this mire of contradictions and weird behavior, and just look at the way that she speaks to Hector here. Brother-in-law of a scheming, cold-blooded bitch, I wish that on the day my mother bore me a windstorm had swept me away to a mountain or into the waves of the restless sea, swept me away before all this could happen. Literally the first lines out of her mouth to Hector are, I hate myself. Brother-in-law of a scheming, cold-blooded bitch. She's talking about herself here. Hector is the brother to Paris. Paris is the husband of Helen. Helen is the scheming, cold-blooded bitch. I wish that on the day my mother bore me, a windstorm had swept me away to a mountain or into the waves of the restless sea. I wish I had never been born. I wish that my birthday had been marked by me dying or being swept off where I couldn't hurt anyone. She sees herself as not only self-destructive, but destructive to everyone around her, a threat to everyone around her. Her beauty is poisoned as far as she can tell. Remember, that's her defining characteristic. Helen, the face that lost, that launched a thousand ships. And yet, she is miserable. She is wretched. And she acknowledges the fact that she has ruined all of these people's lives. And is herself miserable as a result. But since the gods have ordained these evils, she says, why couldn't I be the wife of a better man? One sensitive, at least, to repeated reproaches. Paris has never had an ounce of good sense and never will. He'll pay for it someday. But come inside and sit down on this chair, dear brother-in-law. You bear such a burden for my wanton ways and Paris's witlessness. Zeus has placed this evil fate on us so that in time to come, poets will sing of us. So she invites Hector in. Sit down with me. But she also stresses 
perhaps with major implications, why couldn't I be the wife of a better man? She also hates Paris. Like, their relationship is entirely one of sex, of physical attractiveness. Like, the way that, he that Homer describes Paris when he talks to Hector is Paris, quote, handsome as a god, and Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships. Two extremely beautiful people, but on the one hand, Paris is a little shit who doesn't understand the consequences of his actions, avoids combat like the plague, even though it is his own damn fault, and is completely irresponsible and never had an ounce of good sense, so Helen says. Helen, on the other hand, recognizes that Paris is not worth her time, that Paris is obnoxious and a huge problem and a threat to everyone around him. She is just stuck with him. The gods have placed her with him. She's as upset about getting abducted as Paris and Hector and the rest of Troy seem to be. Um, she is extremely dis or uncomfortable in her current situation. She is extremely dissatisfied. Um, and he, she knows it's just a matter of time until Paris gets his comeuppance. He'll pay for it someday. Um, and by contrast, when she's talking to Hector, when she says, why couldn't I be the wife of a better man? Why don't you sit down on the chair, dear brother-in-law? You bear such a burden for my wanton ways in Paris's witlessness. The suggestion here, at least in some implication, seems to be that Helen has the hots for Hector. And honestly, why wouldn't she? Like, Hector is the exact opposite of everything that Paris is. Like, he's also handsome, don't get me wrong. Like, Hector has the shining helmet. He is, you know, very big and strong and manly. He is a catch in his own right, for sure. But where Paris is frivolous, Hector is profoundly responsible. Where Paris is completely unaware of the consequences of his actions... Hector is completely aware of the consequences of his actions. Where Paris doesn't seem to have any respect for the gods and is absolutely just like flaunting his handsomeness and just doing whatever he wants whenever he wants to, Hector has gone out of his way to leave the fighting where he is badly needed because he thinks it's more important that he respect and ask for prayers to the gods. He is even careful enough not to go into the temple while he is bloodied and could potentially defile it. And notice Hector's response here. Don't ask me to sit, Helen, even though you love me. You will never persuade me. My heart is out there with our fighting men. They already feel my absence from battle. Just get Paris moving, and have him hurry so he can catch up with me while I'm still inside the city. I'm going to my house now, to see my family, my wife, and my boy. I don't know whether I'll ever be back to see them again, or if the gods will destroy me at the hands of the Greeks. Now, when Hector says no, he seems to be responding to both of Helen's suggestions here, like, no, I'm not going to sit down, I've got stuff to do. But also, Helen, seriously, we've been over this, I'm not going to marry you. Like, I'm not going to have sex with you. We are not a thing. We will never be a thing. I recognize that you love me. And that could just as easily be, like, friendly love as erotic love. I don't know the Greek in this particular case. Um, but notice why, too. My heart is out there with our fighting men. They already feel my absence from battle. Where Paris is completely unaware of the consequences of him bailing from the fight, where he's sitting in his in his room saying, oh, well, I'm not really feeling up to it today. Hector is like, they need me out there. 
I owe my men a debt. I need to be on the front lines. And the fact that I'm here in the city is just potentially dooming them. Um, so I need to hurry up. Like, I want to see my wife. I want to see my kid. I'm giving myself that much. I have to, you know, pay attention to my family. But there's no way I'm staying in the city for a minute longer than I have to because I need to get back out there. My men are waiting for me. Um, so... At the end of the last lecture, I asked for you to pay attention to why Hector is fighting, why all of our characters are fighting. Um, the reason why is because Hector's got the best reasons of them all. Um, on the one hand, we've seen him interact with his mother. We've seen him tell her, you know, his mother's like, why don't you sit down, have a drink, pray to Zeus, take a break. And he says, no. I need to get back out to the fight. I want to talk to Paris. I want to see if I can get him out the friggin' door because he's just a complete waste of space and air. Um, I want to get back to the fighting. Um, we see him talk to Paris, and he's by nature upset with Paris because Paris has jeopardized everything that he loves and cares about. And as we see him talk to Andromache, we start to see why. We start to see what it is that Hector values, what it is he fights for. So it takes him a little while to actually find Andromache. He goes home and Andromache isn't there. He thinks maybe she went up to the Temple of Athena along with his mother. She didn't. She went to Ilion's Great Tower because she heard the Trojans were pressed and the Greeks were strong. She ran off to the wall like a madwoman and the nurse went with her carrying the child. This is our first glimpse of who Andromache is. And Andromache is Hector's wife here, but she is way more than just yet another random woman to be passed around, like Helen or Briseis or Chryses' daughter. Um, where Agamemnon and Achilles have been just, like, fighting over women as props in this grand war, and Helen is very much an unwilling prop in this grand war. She is upset with her own role as, like, the MacGuffin to be passed around by Paris, Hector, whoever. On the other hand, Andromache has already taken action. She is an agent. She went to Ilion's Great Tower because she heard the Trojans were pressed and the Greeks were strong. She went to see the battle. She wanted to see what is happening to her family, to her troops, to the people who are responsible for defending her city. She is trying to stay abreast of the situation. She's getting the news, in short. She wants to see what the strategic situation is. And we'll see that again in their conversation. So Hector goes, retraces his steps, tries to go to the western gate and the big tower, when his wife came running up to meet him, his beautiful wife Andromache, a gracious woman, daughter of great Aetion, Aetion who lived in the forests of Placos and ruined the Cilicians from Thebes under Placos. His daughter was wed to bronze-helmeted Hector. She came up to him now, and the nurse with her held to her bosom their baby boy, Hector's beloved son, beautiful as starlight, whom Hector had named Scamandrius, but everyone else called Astyanax, lord of the city, for Hector alone could save Ilion now. He looked at his son and smiled in silence. Andromache stood close to him, shedding tears, clinging to his arm as she spoke these words. Now, before we get to the actual discussion between Andromache and Hector, I want to stop and look at the situation. Um, he is almost to the tower, he is at the western gate, Andromache meets him. And it's not just Andromache, it's Andromache, their nurse, and Astyanax, their son. And notice, like, the way that they're described here. 
Um, Hector's son is gorgeous, like beautiful as starlight, we're told. Um, and Hector loves his son. As soon as he gets close, he smiles. Um, but notice to the names. Hector named him Scamandrius, which is after the river, the Scamander, which flows right by Troy. Um, we will encounter the Scamander later. It will get Achilles, or it will get mad at Achilles at one point. Um, but everyone else calls him Astyanax, Lord of the City. Now, the suggestion certainly seems to be that it's because of Hector. Hector alone could save Ilion now. So everyone recognizes that Astyanax is, for all intents and purposes, the guy in charge of the entire city. Because Hector is the one who is responsible for the city's safety. Only Hector can save Ilion. And Hector is entirely enthralled, like totally in love with his son. His entire life revolves around Astyanax. Um, and so Astyanax is lord of Hector. Hector is protector of Ilion. Astyanax rules Ilion. Um, and this is really important detail. Like, it shows us the relationship that Hector has with everyone around him. That they have this pet name for his son. That they recognize the depth of Hector's feelings for his son. And they're willing to kind of joke with him about it. Like, Astyanax is a joke nickname. Um, it is a sort of indication to everyone involved of how important Hector is to this city. How significant his role in its defense actually is. And how much they care about him. Like, this is a joke made out of compassion. Everybody laughs at this joke. Nobody is put down by it. Um, Astyanax gets his fancy little name, Lord of the City, but this, like, he's just a cute little kid. He doesn't know what's going on. By contrast, Hector understands, like, everyone understands, that this is because they recognize Hector's love for his family, Hector's love for his city, and Hector's significance, his importance in protecting it. Now, Andromache is also a big deal, but doesn't get nearly the sort of press. Like, she is super important to Hector, for sure. I do not want to downplay that. But at the same time, like, it's definitely Astyanax that is the sort of soul of what's going on here. Um, even if he doesn't have a word to say. So Andromache confronts Hector. She says, possessed is what you are, Hector. Your courage is going to kill you. And you have no feeling left for your little boy or for me, the luckless woman who will soon be your wid widow. It won't be long before the whole Greek army swarms and kills you. And when they do, it will be better for me to sink into the earth. When I lose you, Hector, there will be nothing left. No one to turn to, only pain. My father and mother are dead. Achilles killed my father when he destroyed our city, Thebes, with its high gates, but had too much respect to despoil his body. He burned it instead with all his armor and heaped up a barrow, and the spirit women came down from the mountains, daughters of the storm god, and planted elm trees around it. I had seven brothers once in that great house. All seven went down to Hades on a single day, cut down by Achilles in one blinding sprint through their shambling cattle and silver sheep. So, notice... There are a couple things to what Andromache is telling us here. First, she rebukes Hector. Possessed is what you are. Your courage is going to kill you. You have no feeling left for your little boy or for me. It won't be long before the whole Greek army swarms and kills you. Andromache knows Hector is going to die. Like, this is abundantly clear in this passage. 
Now, some of that could just be paranoia. Like, you get the sense that Andromache is just really concerned for Hector's well-being. That's probably why she went up to the tower to see the battlefield in the first place. Um, you get the sense that she has been pining for him. Like, she literally says, you have no feeling left for your little boy or for me. This is an indication that she is worried about him all of the time, and Hector is not reporting in frequently enough. She doesn't know what he's doing at any given moment, and she's scared. Um, she cares about him that profoundly. Um, but also notice that she's right. Um, that the Greek army is going to kill Hector. Like, Hector will not survive the Iliad. Um, Achilles will kill him. We all know this. Again, this is a story told again and again and again to the Greeks. The Trojan War saga is extremely popular. Everybody knows how this story ends. Hector dies. Achilles kills him. And Andromache knows this. Andromache can anticipate this. But even more than that, she points to Achilles. It won't be long before the whole Greek army swarms and kills you, but she immediately turns her attention to talking about how Achilles has really destroyed everything about her family. Um, Achilles is the one who sacked Thebes, who killed her father, who killed her mother, or rather who imprisoned her mother and then released her as a ransom, who killed all seven of her brothers in a single sprint. It's devastating how much Achilles has actually taken from Andromache. And this is the first glimpse we get of Achilles from the other side. Like, remember, Agamemnon originally points to Achilles and says, you know, you are a bad person. You actually like fighting in war. The same thing that Zeus said to Ares, um, which should give us suspicions about Achilles' character. But if anything, we should get even more right now. The fact that, she, that Achilles has absolutely devastated Andromache's life profoundly and weirdly single-handedly. Andromache's entire livelihood, except for Hector, has been taken by Achilles. And P.S. Achilles is going to kill Hector. Like, literally, Achilles will take everyone from Andromache. There will be nothing left of her family by the end of this. And even at the end of the day, it's probably going to be Achilles' son, Neoptolemus, who kills Astyanax and who imprisons or enslaves Andromache as well. But we'll get to that. Um, but notice, too, her own respect for herself here. Before the, It won't be long before the whole Greek army swarms and kills you, and when they do, it will be better for me to sink into the earth. She is, to some degree, pitying herself... Like, in the same way that we've seen Achilles and Agamemnon both pitying themselves. But hers is absolutely warranted here. Like, Achilles, even if he gets his, you know, woman taken from him, he's surrounded by his friends, his army, he's still as strong as he ever was. He's got everything in his life except the one thing that he apparently pinned all of his hopes and dreams on, for some mad reason. On some level, it sounds like, you know, when you feed a cat, it's food, and it's like, nah, I don't want this, and it just turns away, and it is not willing to eat the food. But then you try and take the food away, and it's like, all right, give me that back. I was going to eat that. Um, like, it's the kid who doesn't pay attention to any of his toys until somebody starts playing with them. And now it's like, no, that's mine. Achilles is reacting in the same way. Like, oh, I have all of these gifts and presents. I don't care about any of them. And Agamemnon's like, I'm taking Briseis away. And Achilles is like, no, you're not. That's my Briseis. Um, by contrast, Andromache really has nothing. Um, Achilles has taken everything from her, her entire family, her entire livelihood. If it wasn't for Hector, she would be completely like widowed and alone 
Um, and ultimately, Achilles is going to do that as well. Um, so she says, and she is right, when they kill Hector, it will be better for her to sink into the earth. It'll be easier at that point. Where else is she supposed to go? Like, yeah, Priam's going to probably protect her, but everyone knows as well that the city of Troy is about to fall. And uh, Hector even mentions this. So she stresses at the end of her speech about her family, Hector, you are my father. You are my mother. You are my brother and my blossoming husband. But show some pity and stay here by the tower. Don't make your child an orphan, your wife a widow. Station your men here by the fig tree, where the city is weakest because the wall can be scaled. Three times their elite have tried an attack here, rallying around Ajax or glorious Idomeneus or Atreus' sons or mighty Diomedes, whether someone in on the prophecy told them or they are driven here by something in their heart. Notice she has a different... Like, she's not telling Hector to just stay in all the time. She is absolutely worried about him, and she, like, he is everything to her you are my father you are my mother you are my brother and my blossoming husband but rather than telling him so don't fight like stay inside you know hang out indoors like paris and do not go back out to the battlefield she's like no change your tactics like andromache is aware of the tactical situation of the city which is weird women don't do this like this is shocking from a greek perspective um Instead of saying, you know, come back in, hang out with me, we'll do lots of sacks and it'll be great, her attitude is, station your men here by the fig tree because that's where the wall is weakest. And the troops of the Greeks keep showing up here. For whatever reason, they th keep showing up here and one of these days are going to figure out that they can scale the wall and get into the city this way. So defend this place. It is the weak spot. She's making a tactical decision here. She's giving Hector strategic advice, and Hector obviously isn't going to listen to it, because, you know, who listens to strategic advice from women, right? Um, but notice, you know, Andromache is more than just a random woman being passed around here. She would probably make a pretty good soldier if she were given the chance, if that was within her station, which it's not. Um, she is a fitting wife for Hector, um, where Helen is just kind of like, I'm really upset with my life, and I'm smarter than this, and Paris is a dick and doesn't bring me any honor, and Hector is like, uh, pass. Andromache actually totally deserves that recognition. She deserves Hector, and Hector sort of deserves her. They are a, an appropriate couple, an appropriate match. She is the right mother of Astyanax. She is the right wife to Hector. Um, they are meet as the bible would say they are appropriate for each other they fit one another and hector doesn't like discredit this either yes andromache i worry about all this myself but my shame before the trojans and their wives with their long robes trailing would be too terrible if i hung back from battle like a coward and my heart won't let me i have learned to be one of the best to fight in troy's first ranks defending my father's honor and my own Deep in my heart, I know too well there will come a day when holy Ilion will perish, and Priam and the people under Priam's ash spear. But the pain I will feel for the Trojans then, for Hecuba herself and for Priam king, for my many fine brothers who will have by then fallen in the dust behind en enemy lines, all that pain is nothing to what I will feel for you, when some bronze-armored Greek leads you away in tears on your first day of slavery. 
and you will work some other woman's loom in Argos, or carry water from a Spartan spring all against your will under great duress, and someone, seeing you crying, will say, That is the wife of Hector, the best of all the Trojans when they fought around Ilion. Someday someone will say that, renewing your pain at having lost such a man to fight off the day of your enslavement. But may I be dead, and the earth heaped up above me, before I hear you cry as you are dragged away. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, first off, notice that Hector agrees with her. He is also worried about dying and leaving Andromache and Astyanax to fend for themselves. Um, Andromache calls him out. You have no feeling left for your little boy or for me, the luckless woman who will soon be your widow. And Hector says, yes. Yeah, I, I do feel for you. I am also terrified that I'm going to die and leave you alone. But... My shame before the Trojans and their wives with their long robes trailing would be too terrible if I hung back from coward like or hung back from battle like a coward. Again, Hector feels this responsibility palpably. Like it changes his behavior. He would love to hang out behind the Trojan lines, hang out under in the walls like Paris hiding from battle. Just spend his time with Astyanax and Andromache, who he loves so dearly. But he doesn't want to be a coward. His heart won't let him. He would be ashamed before the people of the city. And notice, I have learned to be one of the best, to fight in Troy's first ranks, defending my father's honor and my own. He has fought hard for this position. He respects the people he spends time with. Again, think back to Hecuba and how he says he can't stay because he has to go back to his troops. He is a valued member of the community and he recognizes his position there. He knows. He feels responsible for the city. Remember, Astyanax is called that because Hector is the only one who can save Ilion at that point. And Hector knows this. Hector is aware of this burden on his back. He knows that he is the only thing standing between the entirety of Troy and Oblivion. He is single-handedly responsible for keeping the Greeks at bay. They don't have another warrior as powerful or as smart or as strategically capable as Hector. Like where Achilles is the strongest member of the army, but not the smartest, where Agamemnon may have the greatest, you know, leadership role, but is actually a terrible leader, where Odysseus is wily and clever and strategic, but at the same time is not nearly as powerful or persuasive as Agamemnon or Achilles. Hector is all of that. Like, he's not as strong as Achilles. He's not as wily as Odysseus. He's not as, you know, as persuasive a leader as Agamemnon, apparently. But it doesn't matter, because they don't have anyone else. They don't have an Odysseus. They don't have an Achilles. They don't have somebody better than him. He is the Trojans' top guy in every dimension. He is literally the only one. Every hope hangs on him. So he has to fight in the front lines because that's his place. Who else could fit that role? Like, he has to do this. It's his job. It is his fate. And his heart won't let him do anything else. But notice, he knows that this is all going to end badly. Deep in my heart, I know too well there will come a day when Holy Ilion will perish and Priam and the people under Priam's ash spear. He knows that this is a doomed mission that he is going to lose this fight, that Troy is going to fall. Everybody knows this. Again, 
Like, Andromache has been hinting at this since the beginning of their discussion. Everyone in the town is aware of the doom that is falling on their heads, or at least Hector is smart enough to see it and articulate it. Um, and we won't see it permanently this way. Like, Hector will have doubts. He'll have moments where he's like, maybe I can take Achilles. Or maybe we can win this war. Or who knows what's going to happen. But here, it's very clear. Yeah, deep in my heart, I know. Ilion is going to fall. And what's more, Hector doesn't want to be there for it. All that pain is nothing to what I will feel for you when some bronze-armored Greek leads you away in tears on your first day of slavery. But may I be dead in the earth heaped up above me before I hear you cry as you are dragged away. Hector knows that this fight is one that he's going to lose. Hector knows the, Greek, the Greeks are going to win this fight, that Troy is doomed. And he doesn't want to be there to see the end. On some level, Hector wants to die. He wants to die well. Like, he doesn't want to slouch, for sure. He is going to do his damnedest to keep this fight going, to keep the Trojans protected. And notice all of the reasons he has for doing that. To protect his father, to lead his troops and be inspiring to them, to empower them. To protect his family, Astyanax and Andromache, who he cares about more than any of the others. He is invested in the entire fate of the city, and every loss is devastating to him. He feels it keenly. His priority is them, the people that he is protecting. His home. Everything about his home. Like, it is so entrenched in who Hector is. His father is the king of Ilium. His hometown is Troy. His family lives here. Um... He is literally going out into the field each day fighting to protect the people he cares about most. And that's why he hates Paris so much, too. Because Paris single-handedly put all of that into jeopardy. Where Hector is intimately familiar with his responsibilities, knows, feels every loss, recognizes that it is only him that stands between the Greeks and the destruction of everything he knows, everything he cares about. Paris, on a fucking whim, just goes and sleeps with the one woman in the entirety of the world who could bring Troy to its knees. Paris has no concept of this responsibility, no concept of what it is that Hector is fighting for. Paris is like, eh, I wasn't feeling it today. Hector is like, you damn well better be feeling it today. Have you been looking around at all the people whose lives are in danger because you screwed up? Are you at all aware of what the consequences of your actions are going to be? Hector knows. Hector sees it. And yet Hector is aware of the fact that at the end of the day, it's not going to matter. But damn if he isn't going to fight. Damn if he isn't going to put his all into this and protect the people he cares about. See, the other theme that we're going to be dealing with a lot in this text is fate. All of these characters are aware of their fates on some level. Achilles knows he is mortal, he is going to die, he's not leaving the plains of Ilium. On the one hand, he thinks to himself, maybe I should just go home. Maybe it's not worth it. Hector also knows his fate. He knows that he loses. He knows that he dies. And in fact, he is hungry to die. 
because he does not want to see the end of this story. He does not want to see Andromache let off in chains. He does not want to see Priam humbled. He does not want to see his hometown crushed and burned. With these words, resplendent Hector reached for his child, who shrank back screaming into his nurse's bosom, terrified of his father's bronze-encased face and the horsehair plume he saw nodding down from the helmet's crest. This forced a laugh from his father and mother, and Hector removed the helmet from his head and set it on the ground all shimmering with light. Then he kissed his dear son and swung him up gently and said a prayer to Zeus and the other immortals. Zeus and all gods, grant that this my son become as I am foremost among Trojans, brave and strong and ruling Ilion with might. And may men say he is far better than his father when he returns from war, bearing bloody spoils, having killed his man. And may his mother rejoice. This passage is heartbreaking. We have Hector in this intimate moment admitting his vulnerability, his weakness to his wife, having this, what is essentially an argument. Um, she doesn't want him to go back to the field. She knows he's going to die, or she's terrified he's going to die, and he knows he's going to die, but he feels like he has to go back anyway. It's his responsibility. It's his job. And in the middle of this, Astyanax just interrupts it. And we have this moment of this pure family bliss, a glimpse of what might have been if Hector hadn't been embroiled in this war, if Paris hadn't brought the war of Troy down on all of their heads, he reaches for his child. Like, he just wants to hold him. You know, this is his son. This is everything he's fighting for. Like, of course Hector wants to see his kid. He's kind of probably had this in mind since he walked into the city in the first place. Like, he probably had a suspicion that Athena wasn't going to listen to a word he had to say. Like, the prayer is kind of pointless. But he just wants to see his son. Can you blame him? And he reaches for the kid. And the kid the kid cries. Like, Astyanax is afraid of his father wearing the helmet. He doesn't recognize him. The Greek helmets, they cover up a decent amount of the face. Like, you can see it, it's kind of squished. But you've got, like, this big shining helmet, and it's got the big horsehair plume on the top. Like, it's, it's this big showy affair. And Astyanax gets frightened and starts to cry. And... Both Hector and Andromache forget for a moment, and they just laugh. Like, it, it's, it's so human. It's so normal. So he takes off the helmet, and he takes his son, and, and he holds him, and he kisses him, and he just chucks him gently up in the air a little bit, you know, like a dad does. You know, toss him up, catch him, you know, get a laugh, and then give him back to the nurse. And then he has this prayer. Grant that this my son become as I am foremost among Trojans. I pray that my son is greater than I am. That one day they'll say he is the son of Hector, but he outshines Hector. Like everything that we've said that's good about Hector, the fact that he's smart, the fact that he's strong, the fact that he's responsible, the fact that he's capable, let my son be that and more. Let them praise him the way that they praised me and then some. And yet, we all know that's not the way this story goes. Astyanax doesn't survive the war either. Most of the stories have it that Neoptolemus or one of the other Greeks chucks him off the walls. Like, he never survives to see the age of four. He's never going to be as great as his dad. Because everyone here is doomed. 
everyone dies. No one survives. No one gets to be as great as Troy is at this moment. This is, this is it. This is the end. And he put his son in the arms of his wife, and she enfolded him in her fragrant bosom, laughing through her tears. Hector pitied her, and stroked her with his hand, and said to her, You worry too much about me, Andromache. No one is going to send me to Hades before my time, and no man has ever escaped his fate, rich or poor, coward or hero, once born into this world. Go back into the house now, and take care of your work, the loom and the shuttle, and take the servants. tell the servants to get on with their jobs. War is the work of men, of all the Trojan men, and mine especially. With these words, Hector picked up his plumed helmet, and his wife went back home, turning around often, her cheeks flowered with tears. When she came to the house of manslaying Hector, she found a throng of servants inside and raised among these women the ritual lament. And so they mourned for Hector in his house, although he was still alive, for they did not think he would ever come back again from the war or escape the murderous hands of the Greeks. They mourn for him like he's already dead. And Hector himself acknowledges no man has ever escaped his fate, rich or poor. Hector accepts this. And this, I think, is one of the profound differences between Hector and most of the other characters we run into. All of the characters we've talked about so far are, are lying to themselves on some level. Agamemnon says that he's a general even though he is garbage at leading. Achilles decides to sit out the war because he thinks, why should I bother to fight and die? Why should I accept my fate when I'm not getting the honor that I deserve? Hector is the one character we've run into, like the one fighter at least, because Andromache knows it as well. But even then, Andromache is trying to change it. Andromache is like, stay back. Avoid your fate. Stand by the walls where you're, you'll be protected. You'll still be protecting the city, but you won't be in danger. Hector is the one character who knows his place in this story. He knows how his story ends. I die, Troy falls, everything is lost. And what is he going to do about it? He's going to play his role to the end. He accepts his fate rather than fighting back against it. Rather than rejecting what fate has in store he acknowledges yeah I'm going to die and you're going to be carried off and it's good that I'm not going to be here to see it because I would suffer too much for that but damn if I'm not going to do my job while I'm here damn if I'm not going to fight like I could get through this damn if I'm not going to spend my last drop of blood fighting for this city, fighting for my family, fighting for the people I care about, fighting for everything that I care about. I accept my fate. It is a small price to pay for the honor of doing this, of being the last bulwark against the fall of Troy. I will spend it, and I will hope that I'm wrong, that Astynax will grow up and become big and strong, that he will be greater than I am, that Troy will somehow survive. But he knows, deep down, that's not how this goes. Now, I also had you read a chunk of the Aeneid for this lecture, 
And I realize it has already been an hour and ten minutes and change, and we haven't talked about it at all. And I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the Aeneid. Like, I, I want to focus on Homer, and this is, like, the most important chapter in all of Homer, so by all means, yes, we're going to spend an hour and ten minutes talking about, like, ten pages of this book. The main reason why I pick this particular section of the Aeneid to read against this particular section of Homer is because I think it is a profound contrast. Um, we see the Trojans in this section of Homer. We see Hector, um, the villain of the piece, if we accept Achilles as the protagonist. And he is in some ways the most human, the most beloved, the most morally upright character in the entire book. The Trojans are respected by Homer, even if this is a work of Greek literature. By contrast, the Aeneid has nothing but disdain for their enemies. Um, like, this is a Roman book through and through. It is about the escape of Aeneas from uh, Troy, the founding of Rome, all these important things. But notice that throughout this section, this is Aeneid book two, this is the fall of Troy. Like, this is what's going to happen as far as the Iliad is concerned. Um, this is the story of Aeneid, like, getting woken up in the middle of the night and panicking and trying to defend the city, like, trying to fight through the waves of marauding Greeks um, and save his family and get to safety. Um, but what I want to focus on is the way that the Greeks are framed by, um, by Virgil as opposed to Homer. Like, Homer loves the Trojans. The Trojans are arguably the greatest, most sympathetic characters in the Iliad. Like, you've got Achilles and you've got Agamemnon squabbling over their prizes. And meanwhile, you've got Hector making the most profound choices and fighting for his family and in this incredible role of just being a good person, even in the face of complete destruction and annihilation. And by contrast, when we see the Greeks in Virgil... It's always as these monsters. Um, like, when Aeneas starts to fight in the streets of Troy, Virgil mentions that many a Greek were killed by them, but some scattered to the safety of the shore in the ships. Others, like terrified children, climbed back up into the belly of the horse. Um, they're cowards. The Greeks are not good fighters. They're just a lot of them. Um, the only reason that they win is because they deceive the Trojans. They trick them. This is a betrayal, not an act of ingenuity. When, like, perhaps the greatest moment of, or the most obvious moment of uh, Virgil's disdain is when Neoptolemus shows up and kills Priam. Um, he describes Pyrrhus, Neoptolemus, as a snake raised on poison basks in the light after a cold winter has kept him underground, venomous and swollen. Now having sloughed off his own skin, glistening with youth, he puffs out his breast and slides his lubricious coils toward the sun, flicking his three-forked tongue. Like, Neoptolemus is a serpent, a devourer, a poisonous animal, a vicious monster. When he busts into the, the chapel where Priam is going to mount his pathetic, hopeless defense, the Greeks forced their way and butchered the Trojans who stood up against them and filled the whole space with their soldiery. They outnumber him like a billion to one. 
And then I saw with my own eyes Neoptolemus lusting for slaughter and Atreus' two sons there on the threshold. I saw Hecuba with her hundred daughters and Priam polluting with blood the very altars he had consecrated himself. Priam arms himself hopelessly. He is an old man. He can't fight all of these young Greek soldiers and yet he arms prepared to die to defend his city the way that Hector does. But here, the Greeks are not sympathetic. They're just bloodthirsty monsters. There's nothing even human about them. When Priam asks for mercy, for this heinous crime, this outrage, may the gods in heaven, if there is in heaven any spirit that cares for what is just and good, may the gods treat you as you deserve for making me watch my own son's murder and defiling with death a father's face. Not so was Achilles whom you falsely claim to be your father, in the face of Priam his foe, but honored a suppliant's rights and trust and allowed the bloodless corpse of Hector burial and sent me back to my own realm. Virgil doesn't bother to understand the Greeks. If anything, this whole text is a screed against the Greeks. Remember, that's partially because the Romans are really self-conscious about the fact that the Greek culture has like dominated the ancient world. The Romans feel a certain amount of like agita about the fact that they're kind of just following in the greeks footsteps um so they they definitely want to write their epic where the greeks are just a bunch of barbaric uncivilized uncultured monsters who just kill people for no good reason and who defile altars and who butcher good meaningful trojans and have no respect for decency um like there's definitely a political a propagandistic element here um but also just Virgil doesn't even try. Like it's it's not a priority for him. And maybe that's a criticism, maybe it's not, but I want I want that contrast to be clear. In Homer, there are no monsters, except the ones that the gods make. There are just people. Like Hector isn't a villain. Hector is a profoundly sympathetic agent in this story. Perhaps the hero of the Iliad in his own right. I mean, for all of the nice things we're going to say about Achilles, I can say four nice things about Hector. Um, Homer respects the Trojans. He respects their enemies. This is a human story. This is a story about how war, at the end of the day, is tragic no matter who wins and who loses. Like, people die, and that's what makes it tragic. There is no good death in Homer. There is no valiant death, no profound or meaningful death. There is only tragic death. There is only the snuffing out of beautiful lives, no matter which side that they're on. Now, we're going to see that again in the next section. Um, we're going to skip a lot when we jump to Patroclus um, and sort of Achilles' reasons for getting back into the war. Um, so, you know, don't mind, like, a lot of it. Again, we're hitting all the major plot points here. Um, I'm hoping to actually record that lecture this week as well, i.e., again, this is the week before you were probably listening to this. Certainly the week before you were responsible for listening to it. Um, but I'm kind of figuring I'll just knock out all of the idiot Iliad lectures at once and then have lots of time to prepare for the Odyssey. Um, at any rate, as you read the Iliad, Keep these reasons in mind. Keep these themes in mind. Keep looking for examples of people's rage and for the way that fate is controlling the events here, the power that fate has over both humans and the gods. 
Um, but it's now time to sort of rejoin the thrust of our plot, to revisit Achilles and Agamemnon and see where their feud ultimately takes us. Um, so happy reading, because there's some dark material ahead. Um, good luck.